Thank you, Paul. <clears throat> Thank you, Daniel, for uh, for sharing a great thing about <clears throat> God's call for us to go uh, to the mission field is the work that he's doing around the world, and we get to see that, um, but also the work that he does in us as we go um, is sometimes so much more powerful um, and experience. So pray about it, and if God says don't go, then don't go, but if he doesn't say anything, then go, because his word has already told us in Matthew 28 that we ought to go. So do it. Obey. I've been uh, away a little bit with Daniel. I was in uh, <clears throat> in Ecuador, and then I came back last week from a conference and begun up to uh, be with Hong on his wedding day, um, and so it's been. I've been in and out a little bit, and so I wanted to. I wanted to kind of uh, touch base a little bit and, and have some uh, one-on-one time with my daughter, with my daughter Manny. And so, uh, before I left for this most recent trip, I got an email invitation saying that um, I was invited to a, a free screening to watch this movie called Dolphin's Tale 2. It's basically the sequel to a movie called Dolphin's Tale about a dolphin who loses his tail and gets a prosthetic tail. Um, it's not that, it's a really good movie. Um, so I responded to that, and so Thursday night, I think it was Thursday night, yeah, Thursday night, I was, uh, I, I came back on Wednesday evening from a trip, and then I, uh, on, I had told Manny before I left, I said, hey, Manny, when Daddy comes back, you and I, we're going to watch Dolphin's Tale 2, okay? Like, what's that? Is that just a movie? Remember the movie with the, uh, with the dolphin, Winter? We're going to watch the second part of that. So she's, like, really excited. So I get, got back on Wednesday, and then Thursday, um, she had ballet camp, and so I uh, picked her up from ballet camp watching her thing, and then um, said, hey, you know, when we get home after, you know, Daddy's going to do some work, and then we're going to uh, eat dinner, and then we're going to watch Dolphin's Tale too. And she's, like, so excited. So um, got home around 5 o'clock, and then we're getting ready to go for <coughs> to Winter Park. And Manny's excited. She's got her dress on, and she's super uh, happy, and she's packing up her bags. And as she's doing that, um, our little guy, Elijah, he starts packing up his bags, too. (laughs) And he's, like, getting ready, and I'm like, oh, no. (laughs) It's going to be bad. Uh, So I said, Elijah, hey, Elijah, tonight, right, tonight is just Daddy and Manny. He said, Elijah, too. Elijah, too. I said, oh, Elijah, okay, next week, okay, next week, Elijah and Daddy, we're going to go get donuts, right? Donuts with Daddy. But today, just Manny and Appa, and Daddy. He's like, no, Elijah too. So he's trying to like put on his socks. And so we had to just uh, sneak out. Olive was holding Elijah, and he was like so bummed out about it. I felt so bad. Right? It wasn't that bad, but the next day, Manny had a play date with one of her friends, one of her five-year-old, four-year-old girlfriends. And so she's getting ready to go, and Elijah's, like, getting ready also. So he's got, like, his little blue dog bag, and he's, like, putting his stuff in there and his diapers. And so we're like, all right, um, Elijah, <laughs> listen, this girl is Manny's friend. She's a girl, okay, not your friend. It's Manny's friend, but today's just Manny. And he's like, no, Elijah too. And he's like getting so upset, and I feel so bad for him. And so we send Manny off, and then Elijah was distraught. And so that night, you, know, you notice Elijah's been talking a lot more lately if you've, if you've spoken with him. <laughs> so I sat Elijah down on the sofa. We had a little, little man-to-big-man talk, and I said, Elijah, why don't you tell me how you're feeling right now? <laughs> so he looked at me and he's like, Father, 
I just feel like this is such an injustice these last two days. I understand that sometimes a father and daughter must spend time together. I understand that. I know that Manny had a great time because she was sleeping in the clothes that she went out to the movie in. I know that you gave her candy because when I saw her in the morning, her mouth was blue. (laughs) I understand all of that. But the next day, you could have at least sent me to go play somewhere, but it was only Manny all the time. And he looked at me, and this is the line that got me. I can't believe he said it. It's so profound. He said, if you really are my father, it shouldn't be like this. (laughs) Have you ever said that to God? You know what? If you're really my father, it shouldn't be like this. There's a guy in Psalm 73 who asked that question. His name was Asaph. This was a really difficult thing for him. Maybe for some of us, this is a very real question. Uh, You look around at your life and you look around at the life of others. And compared to their life, your life seems like it's been passed over. Your life seems like it is a big act of injustice that has been perpetrated against you. You look at your life, you compare it with other people, and you say, God, if you're really my father, if you're really God up there, then my life shouldn't look like this. Have you ever asked that question? You ever wondered if it's worth it to continue living for God? That's what this man named Asaph felt as he looked at his life and as he compared it with those around him. Let's look at Psalm 73. I'm going to just read a couple verses and then we'll stop and then I'm going to just talk through this. It says a psalm of Asaph, and it says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Okay, this is verse 1. This is his thesis. You know, you, you do in school, right? The first thing you have to say is, this is what my paper is about. This is what my argument is about. And verse 1, he hangs his argument as a banner and says, Surely God is really good. He's good to his people. He's good to his people. And then... He begins to tell his story in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So here's a guy named Asaph. If you read through the 150 Psalms, you'll read that 11 of them at the top of the Psalm says this was written by a man named Asaph. Who was he? He was a worship leader in the house of the Lord during ancient Israel's days of of temple worship. So he was one of the praise team leaders. For all of Israel, he wrote some of the songs of the church. 11 of the 150 in their songbook at that time were written by this man, Asaph. This is Chris Tomlin. This is Matt Redman. This is (laughs) Asaph, okay? He's writing these songs to be included in the worship handbook of the people of God. Hey, he's not just some backsliding Joe Schmo Christian that came one day to church and then he said, oh, surely God is good to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my foot had almost slipped. This is a leader within the people of God. And if he can be this honest, then I think we can also. Okay, so this is Asaph. And he's primarily not just looking at his sister, but he's looking at the prosperity of the wicked, and he is envying the arrogant, it says in verse 3. 
the first thing that I want to bring out from this psalm, right, here's a hard reality. Sometimes unbelievers seem more blessed than believers. Right? Hopefully this is true with your experience because, well, if it's not yet, then it will very soon be. He's looking at these people and he's saying, surely God is good. But he's looking at these wicked people. He's looking at arrogant people. And he's saying, I I started to get jealous of them. I started wanting what they had. Now, it would be easy. It would be really easy if all the people who love God, their kids all went to Harvard. Or you guys all went to Harvard, Yale, UVA, whatever it is that you guys go. you, You would go to these great schools. It would be great if all the people of God Unemployment rate was zero. It would be great if we had just rolling in bankroll, right? All this money, all these offshore accounts, Swiss bank accounts, we got all this money and we're swimming in it. It would be easy then to look up and say, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It would be easy if the hospitals were filled with unbelieving, wicked, sick, mean people. It would be easy if the people getting fired from jobs were people who didn't come to church, who didn't worship the Lord God. Then it would be easy for us to say, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But a lot of times we look at life, we look at the world, we look at the people around us, we look at our own lives, and that's not the case. So Asaph is looking around, and he's like, what's the deal? What did he see? This is what he saw, verse 4. They have no struggles, the wicked, the arrogant. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? The Most High have knowledge. This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. Kind of stinks, doesn't it? You look at people like that. Like here you are, one couple, Christian couple, Deeply, deeply, deeply wanting to have a start a family. Non-Christian couple, right? deeply wanting to start a family. Same story, 10 years, 15 years, they've been barren, both of them, right? infertile. Doctors don't know what to do. Christians pray, they pray, they pray. One couple gets pregnant. And it's the unbelieving couple. I wonder, where's God? Does that make any sense? You're doing your best to seek faithfulness to God, trying to walk the straight and narrow as you do work, only to realize that in your industry, you got to cut corners in order to get there. you got to cut corners in order to get ahead. you got to cut corners in order to be productive, to get noticed. And so here you are trying because they taught you at church and in your word, in your study of God's word, you realize that discipleship has to filter into your workplace. And so you realize that from eight to five, from the majority of my day is spent at work. And if I can't live as a Christian there, then I can't live for a Christ, as a Christian anywhere. So you're seeking to live for God in that place. And as you do, you see other people cheating, taking two-hour lunch breaks, getting chummy with the boss, right? drinking, schmoozing with them, doing all kinds of illicit things. Right, going to bars, going to strip clubs, hanging out with them. And even though your work production is so much better, when promotion time comes, you get passed over. 
You're like, where's God in this? If you're really my father, it shouldn't be like this. You're, you're studying as hard as you can, trying to make it into, to, to, get good, to get good scores, to get good SAT, good ACT, get a high GPA so that you can make it, to finish as valedictorian so that you can make it into that school because you see that's where God set your heart so that you can go and be the best that you can be for the glory of God. And as you take this final exam, as you struggle on it, you know that there's people in your class that have been cheating. They got the exam in advance, and there's this one impossible question that's worth 30% of the grade, and you're tempted, should I cheat just this one time? Just this one time. And the Spirit of God, uh, Holy Spirit conviction in you says, just follow me. Follow me, follow me, walk the straight and narrow. And so you reject the offers of these people trying to get you to cheat and you get a score that's under the curve. You miss out on being number one in your class. You don't get into the school of your dreams and you wonder, God, why? Especially in light of Psalm chapter one, blessed are those who don't walk in the way of sinners, who don't stand in the seat of sinners, who don't sit in the seat of mockers, but their delight is in the law. I thought, God, you said, blessed are the righteous and the wicked will come to perish. Is everything that I've written, that I've read in the Psalms all fake? Is it all false? Is it all not real? What's going on here? God, if you're really my father, then it wouldn't have been like this. You ever ask God that? Or maybe you don't have the strength to ask God. So you ask yourself that question and you turn it over in your head. Yeah, you know what? If God's really there, if he's really there for me, it shouldn't be this way. My mom shouldn't have gotten sick. My children shouldn't have been this way. My financial situation shouldn't be like, I shouldn't have ever gotten fired. I shouldn't have ever gotten blackballed by the boss. It should never happen like that. And so verse 13, Asaph says, surely, this worship leader says, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long, I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. Do you ever ask yourself, is it worth it to really live for God then? If everyone else who, who doesn't live for God is advancing beyond me, is it worth it to, why should I even follow God? You ever ask that question? First time I remember asking that question, I was watching a TV, I was in elementary school and I was watching a show called Family Ties. Anyone remember that show? Family Ties. It's about family. Michael J. Fox was a lead. He was the oldest son. And everyone wanted to be Michael J. Fox because he was smart. He was popular with the ladies. He always had funny things to say. People laughed whenever he talked. And so everyone wanted to be Michael J. Fox. And so here he is. Their family of five was about to eat dinner. So they're hanging out in the kitchen. Table is set, right? Silverware, napkin, all that stuff, plates. Food comes to the table, drinks. Everyone sits down, and then they started eating. And I was like, no way. They didn't even pray before they ate. I wondered, what would it be like if I didn't have to pray before? Because my dad, when he prayed, when he prayed for meal, it wasn't good bread, good meat, thank God, let's eat. It was like, man, he would pray for like an hour for like everything under the sun. <laughs> By the time it came time to eat the soup, it'd be cold. By the time it came time to eat the, the meat, it was cold. Everything was cold. Nothing was the temperature it should be. And I remember asking myself, what would it be like just one time to eat a meal at the right temperature? <laughs> I said, maybe it would be better. Man, what would it be like just to sit down? You don't have to wait for dad to come. Don't have to wait for everyone to come. You just start eating. I said, is it worth it to pray before you eat? 
Then I got older. I went to high school, and, and I said, wow, you know what? Some people in my school don't go to church. I thought everyone went to church. Like, what? You don't, you don't have to wear, like, a clip-on tie when you go to church? No. You don't have to wake up at, at 8 o'clock in the morning and go to church? No. You actually get to watch the Redskins on TV? You're not at church? They're like, yeah. I'm like, oh, my gosh. I've been missing out. Is it worth it? And as I got older, I go to senior year in high school. People would be like, hey, what'd you do this weekend? I was like, I was at church. Good way to end the conversation. <laughs> Nobody... <laughs> Nobody wants to know. Oh, so, what'd you learn at church? They'd rather talk about the party at Katie's house. At church? Okay, cool. All right. <laughs> so, you're at church all weekend, huh? Like Friday night, we had youth group. Saturday, I had this. And Sunday, I was at church. Yeah, I was pretty much at church all day. All right, cool. And I thought to myself, is it worth it? Is it worth it to do all these things, to go to church? Is it worth it? You ever ask yourself that question? it worth it to follow God? When the cost of following God seems so high, when all these people who don't go to church, who don't love the Lord, who don't believe in Jesus, are having their way, they're getting rich, they're doing all of this stuff, and everything great is happening in their lives, is it worth it? And as Asaph is thinking about that, he says in verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. But before we went to Ecuador, one of our team members, a girl named Sandra from uh, Atlanta, she was riding on a bus down to Orlando so she could leave with us to Ecuador. And as she was coming off the bus, her foot slipped, and she boom, 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 bounced down the stairs, and she badly damaged her tailbone. And so she had a, you know, we thought, you know, we'll, we'll see, hopefully it'll get better by the time she gets to Ecuador. But she, t- she got to Ecuador sitting on, on, a, on two airplanes and riding on a bus. It got worse. Uh, she had a great attitude. She wasn't complaining, never complaining, never said anything. People were asking her, and she was in obviously noticeable pain. It hindered her from doing a lot of the things that she could be doing, all because her foot had slipped. When Asaph says, my foot had almost slipped, he's not talking about off of a bus. The literal language is that he's about to fall off of a cliff. His life, his heart was at stake here because he's looking at other people and he's saying, I wish that I could have what they have. I don't know if it's worth it to live for God anymore. You in that place? Do you feel like you're on the edge of the cliff and you're here today? Like, man, I got to know. I got to know, is it worth it? Is it worth it? I need to hear something. I, I, I look at what's going on in Iraq, and I need to hear that this is really, this is really worth it for me to continue living for Jesus. His foot had almost slipped. But the second thing, the second thing that we see here is that we need to see, we've got to see, we need to see the big picture. We need to see the big picture. Verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. This language of final destiny in other translations says, then I saw the big picture. Now, what is a big picture? That eternity matters to every human being. 
That every single person, you have never, I think Lewis said, C.S. Lewis said, you have never locked eyes with another human being who is not an eternal being. Either for destruction or for life. But every person, for every person, eternity matters. And he's saying, I envy them because all I saw was a small moment in time, but then I saw the big picture. We've got to see the big picture, y'all. So the other night, Friday night, um, we had our youth lock in and I was hanging out with uh, Elijah and Manny here. And then we went home. Olivia was out with uh, Baby and a couple of the, the sisters. Um, she was eating dinner with them. And so got home and I gave uh, kids a little bit of, uh, of, of food to eat. And then we were watching um, the baseball game. Um, the Orioles, who incidentally are the second best team in the major leagues right now. Yeah. So the Orioles are playing against the St. Louis Cardinals. And we're watching this. And at the end of the seventh inning, the Cardinals pitcher threw a fastball, struck out the Oriole batter, and he pumped his fist, and he celebrated as he walked back to the dugout. As an Oriole fan, it disheartened me. But then I looked. Top right corner was a score. It said Baltimore 12, St. Louis 2. And I thought to myself, you might be celebrating right now, but all you're doing is getting one step closer to your eventual demise. Every out is an out closer to your downfall. Why would you be celebrating without knowing, without looking at the big picture? Guys, you've got to understand that for unbelievers, this life is the closest thing that they have to heaven. And for believers, this life is the closest thing that we have to hell. That's it. That's it. This is as close as we get to hell. The worst thing that can happen in us is we spend eternity with God in the life that was meant to be with the one who we were meant to be with for all eternity. And the unbelievers, they may win the inning, but they have nothing to celebrate. They've got nothing to celebrate but a mere temporal victory of one strikeout. They're not getting any closer to the championship. They're not going to win the game. They're not going to the World Series. That's all they have is this temporary victory to celebrate. And so we say, you can take the world. You can take everything that it has. You can have your bank accounts. You can have your big homes. You can have your fast cars. You can have your fancy clothes. But as long as we have Jesus, that's all that matters to us. Because the closest thing they have to heaven in this life is this life, and that's it. What are we doing envying them? What do they have that we don't? Nothing in this life. Nothing in this world. He says, surely you place them, verse 18, on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They think they're on firm ground. We thought our feet had almost slipped, but he says they're the ones on slippery ground. Outwardly, they've got it all. They've got security. They're boasting. They're talking about how they've got all these things, but inwardly, they're falling every day. That's why so many quote-unquote successful people in the world inwardly are dying a slow death. That's why you read in any in any year, you read the, the deaths of celebrities who have died and how many people have taken their own lives because people look at them and say, you know what? They've got everything. They've got everything, but in reality, they've got nothing. 
because they have not the one thing that every human being was created to have. And we envy people who are standing on a sinking ship. What's it like as a dream when one awakes so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When I first moved here in Orlando, some of y'all have heard me talk about my first place when I lived here. I moved from Virginia, and I, I didn't have time to, to visit beforehand. And so I found a place through a, a website and a company called Apartment Hunters. Found this one-bedroom place on Alafaya Trail, $520, really good. Get what you pay for, though. So my mom visited. She's like, oh, my goodness. She couldn't believe that her son was living in a place like that. I didn't think it was that bad. I mean, I was a single guy, and I thought, hey, it's, you know, it's all right. One bedroom, it's fine. 2001, when I walked in, I felt like I was transported back to 1970s. Right? The design on the carpet, the texture of the carpet, like old school George Jefferson living room kind of a deal. The walls were like wood panel walls, right? You push them and they like move like three inches, that kind of, that kind of a thing. The ceiling looked like it was about to cave in. It was adver- I mean, the reason I bought the place was, or I, I rented the place was that when I looked at it, the advertisement said, it was called University Villas. It said um, lighted basketball court, which was huge for me. I love basketball. Lighted tennis court, sparkling swimming pool. I said, this is great. And I called the guy and I was like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm ready to, to sign the deal with, this, uh, with these guys. And I said, is this place pretty nice? And he gave a two-second pause, which should have, I should have got the message then. But he said, nah, it d- depends who you ask, yeah. Some people think so. So I thought, wow. Um, I, mo- I walked in, University Villas, should have been called University Dumpster. <laughs> I got to that place, lizards crawling around inside my apartment. So a lot of you guys know that story, but th- that's kind of the setup. This is the part, and I hesitate to tell this, because I, this is only the second time I've ever told this story. Um, ever in my life. I don't think Allah's ever heard this before either. Um, but I don't want to be, uh, I don't want to drop names, but I have been privileged to have been able to meet some famous people. The most famous of them of all time is uh, a woman named Michelle Pfeiffer. You guys know Michelle Pfeiffer? Yeah, she's an actress. Beautiful back in the day. Beautiful. Scarface, um, Batman, one of the Batman movies. So Michelle Pfeiffer happened to be in town the day I was moving out of my apartment. And needless to say, I was in a hurry. I was eager to get out. So she came to my apartment. Okay, check this out. She came to my apartment. Then I'm going to help you get ready to move. I was really excited. She was like putting some things in a a big box and a bunch of boxes. And we're just kind of shooting the breeze as we're talking. Where are you moving to? I'm moving to Oviedo. Things, you know. Oh, you know, that's a cool... uh, uh, I had a little scooter there. Oh, that's a pretty cool scooter. We were just kind of talking. And, and after we had packed up, you know, I had a great time just talking and, and just learning about Hollywood life. And I forgot what else we talked about. And some guys were like, hey, let's go out and eat. And I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. So I said, hey, you want to go out to eat? Next thing you know, you know, you don't know the next thing that happened? I woke up. <laughs> it was all a dream. I said, no, <laughs> I need to fall back asleep. <laughs> I was hanging out with Michelle Pfeiffer. This great. We're just about to go to steak and shake. Oh, my goodness. And, and it was all a dream. And just like that, just like that, it was gone. 
as a dream when one awakes. So when you arise, O oh Lord. This is the life of the wicked. And everyone is, oh my gosh, it's so beautiful, it's amazing, oh, we need to stay in this. And they wake up, and it's all over. It's all over. And how quickly we envy such a life. How much we want that kind of a life. How much we long for that kind of a life. When Jesus says it's nothing, it's gone. The vapor and the wind. We understand that when we see the big picture, this earth is as close as unbelievers will ever get to heaven. You see that? Do you believe that? That this life in all of its hardship, in all of its pain, in all of its difficulty is the closest we will ever get to hell. How do we find this out? The last thing, we see this to be true. We find all this to be true when we enter the house of God. The reason Asaph fell into this predicament, if you look at verses 1 through 3, he says, surely God is good to Israel, isn't he? He's good to Israel, right? And then starting in verses 2 and 3, he says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost it. I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity. So the implication is that God is good to the community, to all who follow Jesus, to all who follow him. But as for me, isolated from the community, here I am, thinking my own thoughts to myself, reveling in the delights of the wicked, talking to myself about all of the great things that the wicked people have, and he's isolated from the community. How did all of this change? Verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Whenever we come and gather as the people of God, the idols of our heart that we have erected are dismantled in light of the one that really matters. In light of all of those things that we live, stumble through the world, living and craving for, clamoring after and grasping for, we come into this place, into the house of God, and we realize that all of that stuff, all of that is just a mere illusion compared to what we see when we enter the house of God. Do you know that every time we gather as the people of God, there is a power and a potential for lives to be changed? For your life to be changed. Do you come with that expectation? I believe with all of my heart, with every fiber of my being, that every time we gather here, that lives are going to be changed. I believe with every ounce of anything within me, that whenever we give an invitation, even though some people may not respond, I believe in my heart that God has people that he wants to save. Believe every time we sing the songs of the church to the Lord, to each other, to ourselves, that there's transforming power here. Every time we meet, he's saying, listen, I came into this place and I was broken. I was jacked up. I was ready to throw in the towel. My foot had almost slipped until I entered the house of God. And everything was different. Everything changed. You believe that this is what awaits you whenever you gather? Whenever we come, whenever we come, 
It's not about God's inability. It's not that, hey, he promised, taste and see, Psalm 34, 8. This is my quiet time this morning. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's not God's ability, inability to satisfy us. It's our inability to be hungry for him. It's not God's inability that he can't change lives. It's our inability to be honest and surrender to him. Every time we gather, God wants to change lives. Every time we gather, how can a supernatural almighty God enter into a place of natural human beings and we not see supernatural things happen? And God's not a human being like, oh, God is a human being. He's like Hercules, a little bit stronger than the rest of us. Maybe he's strong enough to change one or two people. It is God almighty. When he speaks, the earth thunders. And all around, all of creation cries glory. Like, this is God. This is him. And he says, I didn't understand all this, but I came to the house of God and everything was different. Then I saw. It was all different. One of my professors, former professors in seminary, Steve Brown, talked about this time when he was worshiping in, in the back of a, a sanctuary. He just kind of slipped in. And he saw this woman, and she was, she, she was obviously messed up. She was, just had a, a rough week, whatever it was. She was sitting there, and before service started, 10 minutes before, she was just hands in her face. She was weeping, right? hands over her face. She was crying the whole time. Praise leader invited them up, said, let's stand, let's sing. They sang this song, God is good all the time. And that whole entire time they sang it, her face just weeping, weeping, weeping. Said second time they sang it through, she leaned back. And she looked up with her head lifted up. But by the third time she sang it, she was standing up and her hands were lifted up in the air. This is what happens when we gather amongst the people of God. You know, every time we gather, Brennan Manning said, whenever the people of God come into church, they come with a bag of tears. Maybe you do too. No one's crying right now. But you come in with your own brokenness. You come in with your own hurt. You come in with your own infirmities. You come in with your own fears and, and wondering and question and doubts. And, and, and maybe you're here and you're like, one last week, one last week. Just get, you, you got to show up. You got to show up and give me something that's going to give me strength to go on. Now, that's my motivation a lot of times. I'm like, I got to leave the 99 and I got to find that one person who's about to throw in the towel today if they don't hear a message of hope today. They don't meet Jesus. They don't encounter Jesus today. Then it's over. Like we're going after people like that. Every time praise team gets up there, that has to be. Anytime anyone, we pray for our services. We're praying that this would happen. And I, I spoke at a conference uh, this week, and I was, there was like three different speakers and six different worship sets, and I was the first one to get up there to preach Monday night. There were 700 people out there, and the, 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 just a dominant feeling that I had, and I, this was confirmed later. I spoke with people who were hearing about uh, child abuse going on, people sharing about being abused, uh, drug abuse, uh, sexual abuse, all kinds of stuff going on. And, I, and I, the first thing I said, I stepped on that stage. I said, listen, some of y'all feel like you're not, you're not ready to be here. You don't feel like you should be here. You feel like God's forgotten you. You feel like you're not able to love God. You feel like you, you made all these commitments last year and you failed. The first thing I said is this is the very place that you need to be. Now, you need to hear from God, with the people of God. And I left the day early, but the transformation in that place of worship, of hearts, even in two days, one night, full day, that next morning, the transformation in the hearts of people, amazing. 
because God was in that place. As soon as that conference was done last year, they started praying for this year's conference because they believe that God's going to show up in that place. And so people come, and when it's time to pray, it's just, this fire falls. People just weeping, calling out to the Lord. Every time we gather, this should be what we expect. It's what we're praying to see happen. What is it that they see? Verse 23, verse 21. When my heart was grieved, my spirit embittered, I was senseless, ignorant, I was a brute beast before you, yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will take me into glory. Verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is what we see coming to the house of the Lord. Literally what he's saying, when my heart and my heart and my flesh may fail, literally it says my heart and my flesh are failing. They come into the house of God. They're about to fail. My foot is slipping. I'm about to go the way of the wicked. But why didn't he slip? And why haven't you or I fallen? Last night at our lock-in, yesterday during our lock-in, the last of our services, one of our brothers, uh, Hong, he's getting married. Um, He shared from the book of Job. And he's just sharing about his life. The book of Job is the story of a man who clung faithfully to God, even though everything in life was stripped from him. And as Hong was sharing about his journey, about how his family got kicked out of their home, how he couldn't go to college because of citizenship status, how his family lost their job and all of the things that they had, they, their business uh, failed, and all the things that happened in his life. And a lot of times he wondered, is it worth it? A lot of times he was depressed. A lot of times he thought about ending his life. But what is it that kept him faithful to the Lord God? That it was songs that he would sing when he would get into the house of the Lord. Through every trial, through every storm, my heart will sing. In every storm, God, you're there with me. I will praise you in the storm. Getting into the house of God, he realized that my strength is gone. But when I gather in the house of God, I realize that there's a new strength that is given to me when I come into the house of the Lord. Because God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever and ever and ever. And some of you guys feel like I'm about to give up. I'm about to throw in the towel. You've got to realize that when your strength fails, that God will be the strength of your heart, that he will be there for you. When you're at the end of your resources, you gather in the house of the Lord and he pours infinite grace and strength into your life so that you can carry on in a way that you could not if you did not know the Lord God. There's a way that the reason the wicked, the reason the unbelievers take their lives because they don't have God who will be their strength. And they give in because they realize that there's nothing left that they could cling to. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What does this mean? What does a portion mean? The ancient days of Israel when the tribes were divided up, each group amongst the Israelites would get a portion of the land. You got three kids. 
and each of them wants some candy, you divide up the portion and you give them each one-third. Here's what it's saying is that one kid is saying, you know what? I don't need any of that candy. I don't need any of those M&Ms. You don't need to divide it up with me because my portion is not here. My portion is God. He's the one that I want. As much as a child longs for candy to be given equally to everyone, he's saying, I will give that up in order that I might have God. In the same way that we look at the world, that we look at the things that the world offers, and we say, I want what the world has. God, where's my portion? We're saying, I gladly give that up in order that God would be the portion of my life, that he would be the only thing that I need, and in him, I can be completely satisfied, and nothing else matters. I need nothing else. That's the one thing in this life that the unbeliever will never have. It is the one thing in eternity that they can never get. When you weigh our lives on the scale of eternity, the riches of the world, the riches of the unbeliever is nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory that we will receive in the afterlife as well as even now in the life to come. Because Jesus is more than enough for us. Surely God is good. Surely God is good. The eyes of the world look the lives of the wicked, and they say, that's the blessed life. They look at our lives and say, that's a cursed life. That's how it is when they looked at the life. A man named Jesus, the one who was infinitely blessed, the one who all of his heart was, God, I don't need any of these things, no place to lay my head, because God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And as he hung on the cross, cursed, the world looked at him and said, there is a man cursed. Even the followers of God looked at him and said, he's cursed. Why? Because he said, whom have I in heaven but you? But even in heaven, heaven shut its lights out on Jesus at the cross forsaking Jesus. Earth has nothing I desire because he was completely abandoned by his disciples whom he loved. Jesus was cursed at Calvary in order that the blessed life that you and I never deserved, that he alone did, could be given to you and to me so that we can truly say now, whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire. You could take the world but give me Jesus. That's still more than enough. Let's pray. As we take just a minute to pray, as we have envied maybe the life of the unbeliever, step back and let's see the big picture. Whatever you deal with in this life, this life will be the closest thing to hell that you'll ever experience because you've been bought with the blood of the Lamb. The worthy, worthy Lamb. Wonder, is He worth it? Is it worth it? You look at Jesus. You look at the Lamb who is worthy. God, why would I want, why would I envy the things that the wicked leave behind? Why would I envy the kind of life that's just a, a, a dream Oh, to have more of Jesus, my eternal and all-surpassing treasure. There's nothing worth more. Let's pray and let's surrender our hearts to the Lord. Maybe we need to 
repent about certain idols that we have bowed down before. Ask the Lord God, wash me and turn me towards you so that I can see you who is my hope, who is my hope in this life. And even after I die, nothing, not even death can take you away from me. From the moment we put our trust in Christ to the, for the rest of our eternity, our lives are set. We have all that we need. Let's pray together for a couple moments and then we'll pray and we'll continue to worship as we respond to God's word through our gifts and our songs.